It's time for Dig Deep on KEXE, KBXE. We take up topics of conversation that have to do with northern Minnesota or Minnesota in general. I'm Heidi Holton, and joining me in the studio are our commentators. Aaron Brown's our liberal commentator, and Chuck Marone is our conservative. Been a while. Welcome back. Thanks for being here today. It's good to be here. It is. Thanks for having us. So we're going to take up an issue that has a lot of drama around it, and we're going to kind of start at the beginning, how we got to where we are. And this has to do with environmental regulation and mining and jobs, and where would you like to begin? I want to talk about, basically, how do we end up with this patchwork of environmental rules that we have today, and all the debates and the fight over it. There was this kind of iconic moment in the environmental movement And I think it's actually been overplayed, but let's just go along with it. The burning of the Cuyahoga River. Mm -hmm. uh, Randy Newman wrote a song about that. Yeah, and I think that's why it's been a little dramatized. I've actually been to that river, and the people there said, you know, it's been been over-dramatized. But it's a good story, you know, the... The evil businesses and corporations dumping stuff into the into the river, the river being so polluted it catches on fire, and look at what we've done to to nature and to the world we live in, and let's let's clean this up. And it's a dramatic scene. I want to give you an even more dramatic scene. In the 1960s, as we're well into the highway building era, we're building interstates all over North America, all over the U.S. And these are funded in this, you know, Interstate Highway Act, the defense highways from Eisenhower. And we're out building these things and, and we're creating, we're transforming America. I mean, we're building this great version of America. We're creating the American dream writ large across the continent. At one point, uh, the engineers who were largely unencumbered in this effort, this is before environmental reviews, this is before really before public hearings even, before, I mean, you would go out and tell people, here's what we're going to do, but if people opposed you, you just ran right over them. It didn't really matter. Of course, you would strategically pick poor neighborhoods and disenfranchised neighborhoods because that made it easier. But nonetheless, there was no opposition to this. Geography had a little bit of opposition, though, in the form of the Rocky Mountains. Uh, When engineers got to the Rocky Mountains, they discovered that it was really difficult to build a highway through the mountains. Um, Their solution, and I'm not joking you, uh, was to use atomic weapons dropped strategically or placed strategically within the Rocky Mountains to, in a sense, level a path through the mountain to be able to put a freeway through there. So imagine like this big mountain and you're just going to cut it down. You're just going to blow it up, uh, pick up the rebel, haul it out, and then you'd have a nice flat straight highway through the mountains. And at this point, some people in the political circles stepped back and said, wait, wait a sec. <laughs> what, you're, you're seriously talking about doing this? And with all earnestness, this was the proposal. I think this is the kind of thing that when you're an insider, when you're someone running a company, when you're someone building a highway, when you're running a, a federal agency or a corporation or what have you, it's a matter of like degrees, Right. We're going to fill this wetland. We're going to take out this hill. We're going to do this thing. Yeah, we'll, we'll dispose of our stuff, but like this stuff is not regulated, so we'll just put this in the river. And, and there's this kind of thing where you start small, and I think good, decent people can start in a certain place, but then it takes on like a momentum of itself where earnest, thoughtful and, and I think engineers are generally like decent people. I'm an engineer. I, I think they're good people can get to the point where like the thing we're trying to accomplish is a highway. 
ergo level this great geographic landmark because it's, it stands in the way. This is what brought about this mentality is what brought about the environmental regulations of the, of the early seventies and, and the eighties where we said, Hey, we can't just do this this way. There's got to be some check. And the only check that seems big enough is a federal bureaucracy and federal legislation to, uh, to handle this. And actually, I, I look back even a little further than your story for, for some examples of the large S. Uh, and, and my point of view would actually come from the standpoint of how American business operated as it w- in the expansion of America, the, which included all manner of amazing accomplishments and also all manner of uh, overreaches and exploitations. And, and I'm going to focus specifically on a couple of stories I've uncovered uh, in my research one of them is, I think I've, wanted, I've mentioned before, in uh, the first environmental lawsuit on the Iron Range was not PolyMet, believe it or not, even though that feels like it occurred about 100 years ago when it started. But actually, about 100 years ago, actually a little bit more, the Wisconsin steel mine in Nashwalk used a lake uh, as a essentially what a tailings pond is now they began using a lake as a as a dumping place for its uh, fine materials and and other other waste products from their from their finishing plant they were one of these early mines that actually processed ore that crushed and and uh, separated ore you know not the pure iron ore that the range was known for but now they're getting into some of the less valuable but still uh, saleable um, goods so they had this washing plant and they used the lake just because it was there it was a lake and the, there were no regulations to speak of so they used the lake well the the unintended outcome in addition to destroying the lake uh, which is maybe obvious, but they um, one day the water was high, and of course, like if you study watersheds, if you study water in general, the hydrology of water. Um, one day the lake spilled over, and it spilled down a creek into another lake, and then into a really a bigger lake that more people have heard of called Swan Lake. And if you live on the range, the West Range by Pengilly, you know there's Swan Lake. It was a even then, it was a place where the people in town who had a little bit of money would build their lake places, and of course, that's even more the case now. Swan Lake, this this you know kind of rich folks getaway where the doctors and, and lawyers would go, turned blood red one day, <laughs> and uh, it was it was disturbing, uh, obviously, which is not a good sign. Not a good right. sign. That's not optimal, <laughs> and it resulted in the first environmental lawsuit in mining history in the state of Minnesota. Of course, the lawyer was the guy I'm researching, Victor Power. He was unsuccessful. There were a lot of reasons for it. He was successful in in getting the case to go along, but ultimately they didn't have, they didn't have color photography back then. And so, what they were comparing were these jars of liquid that were pulled from the lake at different times in different places. Of course, the people who were suing had red water from the the reddest part of the lake and the mines had uh, grabbed samples from less affected parts of the lake that were a little more clear. And so they were left to uh, no, really that morning it was blood red and like, well, I don't know. It wasn't quite as red the next day, you know, that kind of thing. So ultimately it was hard to prove what the, what the, that the people were trying to prove. But another uh, case that from around the same time, just a few years later, uh, kind of shows the largesse of this whole thing. Uh, if you know former Governor Rudy Perpich, the late governor, the only Iron Ranger elected governor of the state, you know uh, if you know his story, you know he was raised in a mining location called Carson Lake. 
And when he was growing up, Carson Lake was a mining location. But before that, it was a lake. It was an actual real natural lake called Carson Lake that really did exist and that was erased from the map by the Oliver Mining Company. They dredged the lake, drained the lake, and if you can I don't if you ever imagine draining a lake, I mean just the the science of it, and then they had to dredge out all the mud. They found fossils and and pearls from ancient oysters and they found and they dr- just dragged all that stuff out of there. And then they started mining, only to realize that the ore there wasn't quite as good as they thought it was. And maybe they didn't need to do that. And they ended up closing the mine, and Carson, Carson Lake became a location that served a body of ore that was never under the water. <laughs> so it was this just insane kind of overreach, especially by the, the powerful who were just like, oh, there's ore down there. Let's go after it. The lake's in the way. So what? We don't have to do any due diligence. We don't have to really promise to pay anybody back. The only people who's losing here, we got lots of lakes, landed 10,000 lakes. Who needs them? And um, that attitude was allowed to uh, prevail really through the decades that followed up until there were more regulations later in the taconite era in the 60s and 70s again you you run into the first teeth first regulations with real teeth here's what i think is fascinating we we both just told a story about environmental damage essentially pre-regulation mm-hmm. this is the conservative liberal dichotomy here Aaron's story was about business out polluting. My story was about government out doing <laughs> massive environmental destruction. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just our biases. I no, suppose. but I, it's it's. I do think it plays into why our like cultural dysfunction about this conversation mm-hmm. rests. Because for for me, when you say environmental destruction, I think you know the construction of dams, the building of highways, basically the system of uh, taming. From a from a top down standpoint, taming North America through massive infrastructure projects as being the most egregious and damaging part of what we have done to the environment. That's all central. That's all government led. That's all government investment. And a a big part of the environmental movement, in its especially in its early days was, you know, we're singing songs about how bad businesses are, and it's a good, like, hippie meme. But the reality was, like, a lot of it was pushing back on the fact that the federal government would come in with highway dollars and run right through the poor black neighborhood and 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 put up a huge swath in between it, dislocate all the people, and walk away. They would go and take and build a big dam, and the dam would completely change the ecosystem of thousands and thousands and thousands of acres overnight with no one giving any consideration to the impact that that would have on on flora on fauna on you know anything but the farmers who would get the water for their fields now i think though in that argument we have to look at the reality that this was a society of consumption and that the need for the dams was the need was related to the need for electricity which was needed because of the enormous commercial expansion of America and all of the electricity needed for the new cities, the new factories, the new everything that we had to do now, the more energy intensive work that was being done, making plastics, making airplanes, making cars, all these things that were not part of our economy in the 1800s were now the the base of our economy in the 1900s. And government was... whether it was liberal or conservative or whatever really didn't matter. The government was responding much like... Oh, I, I think it, it, uh, there's a there was a broad... Yeah. I mean, we look back at this with nostalgia. It's like we all used to get along so much better. Yeah, we got along 
because we all agreed with that like central narrative yeah. that this is what we should be doing. Well, just like in Hibbing, when I this research period where, where Vic Power had all the support in Hibbing, and he had all the support because everybody in town was getting rich at the same time, right? And everybody was getting what they wanted, and nobody was getting left out of the of the scrum. And when that stopped, Vic Power's support waned because, uh, and that's just like you know the, you know I think that that post-war period was a kind of a, a beautiful, wonderful period of what we think was. Well, I guess I, I guess a lot of people think of it as this beautiful, wonderful period, but it was really just the consolidation of power after the war and the consolidation of wealth and and its distribution. And so, when, I don't I I think that let's for sake of argument call it the evil engineer or the yeah. evil administrator at the helm of one of these big government agencies. Maybe it's not a real person, but let's just imagine the worst image of a government bureaucratic leader. Uh, I don't know that that person was was came in with the I'm going to mwahaha. No, you could know, They're not the, the Mr. Burns. Character. I'm going to kill the animals and put right. down the and, and dam up the rivers and and I think it was much more. A lot of people were responding by the demand by a lot of people, not just people, but companies and powerful business individuals, governmental individuals. Everybody wanted jobs in their district. Everything. And there was no nothing holding it back. So why not build the dam, blow up the mountains, and whatever else? I, I feel like know? here's the takeaway, though, mm-hmm. and, and th- this to me is the is the thing that maybe gives me some hope is that you did have a consensus, a broad political consensus that we should be growing in this way, we mm-hmm. should be building in this way, and yeah, you know, it it might cause some damage, it might be unfair to some people, but progress, progress, progress. Right. The environmental movement, when it first started, was a fringe, fringe movement. Mm-hmm. These were people way outside of the mainstream, and by the time you get through the 1960s and you get into the 70s and you start to get the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, you start to get what we think of today as the environmental review process established as written law, what you have is you have a very fringe movement that now has become mainstream. And it became mainstream largely because I think it tapped into, in a populist way, the human reaction to what this consensus was was had wrought. Well, and yeah, exactly. What there were all sorts of negative effects to to what we were just talking about. And and I'll just give you some examples. In Duluth, if you've been to Duluth in northern Minnesota, you know that it's lakeside, waterside parks and properties are now the this hub of town, tourist destination all summer long, they're packed concerts, fun things, great great part of the urban redevelopment of a re, rebirth of, of downtown Duluth. But in before the Clean Air and Water Acts, it was junkyards and it was nasty, polluted uh, loading dock facilities and in warehouses and it was gross. It was literally disgusting to be down there. And a lot of American cities on the Great Lakes were that way. A lot of American cities on rivers were that way. The waters were polluted. And so there were all these reasons why these bills were were popular, why Richard Nixon signed them. I mean, Richard Nixon is not exactly Mr. Environment, but he he saw the need and he recognized the, you know, the necessity of, of doing that. And so that's, there was consensus for these things because of the environmental destruction. Well, I think like any... There, there's always it takes you some time, but you can forget, <laughs> you can forget why things were the way they were, and because I think those were big sweeping pieces of legislation that were mostly popular. Obviously, there was opposition, but but they were broadly popular and, and still are to some extent. 
Efforts to change anything after that, however, have proven much more difficult. And I think, I don't know if I'm segueing correctly, Chuck, but it, uh, I think that gets into what we wanted to talk about with this patchwork of regulations. Once the big sweeping legislation is passed, passing fixes or as responding to new technology is a little more challenging. I totally agree. In our next segment, we will talk about where we are at now when it comes to environmental regulation. It's Dig Deep on KEXC, KBS.